This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, may each of us follow you wholeheartedly this morning as we turn to your word. I pray for your grace as I speak, for your grace as all of us, for all of us as we seek to listen to your spirit and take to heart what you want to teach us. Please give us open hearts. Please give us obedient hearts. Please help us to surrender to your truth today. Do your work, please. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We all know what it feels like to be an outsider. This past May, my family and I went to visit my in-laws in rural uh, farm country, Indiana. And one of the neighbors was plowing a field with a big tractor and offered uh, that I could take my boys up there with him for a ride while he was plowing the field. And uh, very kind of him, we, we went up there, um, and I tried to, you know, be polite and make some conversation. And so I started asking him questions about his plan for the planting season and that sort of thing. And he was very kind, and he answered my questions and asked some of his own about my family. But as soon as I opened my mouth, it was clear, I'm a city boy. I am an outsider to farm country. I'm from the great metropolis of Portsmouth, Virginia. (laughs) Now, sometimes it can be more significant than that to be an outsider. And often, it uh, doesn't feel very good to be an outsider. But the fact is that as long as there are insiders, there are going to be outsiders. As long as there are exclusive groups then people are going to get excluded. And that's not all a bad thing. For example, people who show up to watch a professional orchestra perform a concert don't complain about the fact that they won't let just anybody up on stage with an instrument to join in. That orchestra is something special, in part because it's an exclusive group. And everyone sitting around watching is an outsider, And that's how it should be. That's how it's meant to be. Well, as we've been studying through the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul has been addressing a group of insiders. In fact, he's just spent basically all of chapter 3 instructing those insiders about how they ought to treat each other, those within this special group, how they ought to be behaving towards one another. Of course, this group of insiders are Christians, This book is written for Christians. It's written to Christians, for those who are inside the body of Christ, for those who share the fellowship of relationship with Christ. And Paul's made it clear that behavior within that group is very important. The way Christians treat each other is important enough that he had just spent about a chapter laying out the specifics of it. But now, Paul is going to turn his attention towards how these Christians, those inside ought to treat outsiders? How ought those who are part of Christ's body treat those who are outside the body? 
Now this can be a tricky subject to tackle because of the tendencies of our human nature. And I'm grateful for the, the, the clear and balanced message of scripture in this area as in so many. It neither encourages us as Christians to shun outsiders, nor does it encourage us to act like there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. There really is a difference between those who are inside the body of Christ and those who are outside the body of Christ. It matters whether or not someone is a believer. And God has some specific instructions to guide believers in how to interact with non-believers. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's where Paul turns our attention as we get into these first verses of chapter 4. So let's take a look at Colossians 4 together and see how Paul helps us with our perspective on this matter. I'm going to read Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. God's word says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards them, toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So Paul's looking at himself, he's looking at these Colossians, and they're standing in Christ. And then he's looking at this piece, the nature of their relationship to others outside the Christian faith. Them that are without is the wording that Paul uses here. And he has some really practical instruction to guide them in their interaction. So first, let's take a look at verses 2 and 3. I'm sorry, 2 through 4, where Paul is encouraging them, as he's talking about himself, to speak the mystery. In chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul assured these believers in Colossae of his prayers for them. Now as he gets ready to wrap up this book, he's asking them to pray for him and for those who are working alongside them. And he asks them to pray for a couple of things. First of all, he wants them to pray that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. We'll talk about what he means by that in just a moment. But the other thing that he wants them to pray for is that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So there's a lot to try to unpack in these verses. But central to what Paul is saying here is this idea of speaking the mystery of Christ. So what is he talking about when he talks about um, the mystery of Christ? He's got a message to convey. Paul has something to communicate to other people, something that he knows and that he understands, but that they do not yet understand. So think of an experienced mountain guide interacting with a group of hikers who have strayed dangerously high on a mountain without proper equipment. That guide is going to understand the perils of the mountain, the perils of the altitude, the perils of the weather conditions. He understands these dangers of which these hikers are blissfully unaware. And the guide has a warning to pass on. He has direction to give. He has information to convey There's something that he knows 
that they do not. Something that is understandable to him that he wants to pass along to them to help them understand so that they will know the peril of their position and what they need to do to get out of it. Well, that's Paul's heart when it comes to the mystery of Christ. He wants to make it known. He wants to help others understand. So what is the mystery of Christ? What is he talking about here? Well, Paul uses this idea of a divine mystery throughout his letters. In places, um, he uses it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians. And we could spend quite a while trying to fully exhaust Paul's teaching on the divine mystery or mysteries. And you could argue that there are multiple mysteries that he talks about or that it's one big mystery with, with different facets. But really, if we're going to boil it all down, it comes down to one thing. As he talks about the mystery, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has referred to mystery twice already in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, he referred to the mystery among the Gentiles. And then he, he expressed it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery he's talking about is the fact that Christ is living inside the Colossians. And that's the mystery that he's talking about conveying to these Gentiles. This idea of God being within man. He talks as well about mystery in chapter 2. He calls it the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And in that passage he says of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, the gospel is a mystery. It doesn't make complete sense to the human mind. We can't completely wrap our mind around the truths that are contained in the gospel. The person of Christ is a mystery. How is it that he can be fully God? He's one person of the Trinity, which in its mystery beyond our comprehension. He's fully God and yet he becomes fully man. And as fully God, fully man, he dies. And then he rises from the dead, and that is the means of our salvation. These are wonderful truths, but can we wrap our minds around that? Can we understand how this can be? In our human minds, we cannot understand it. There is mystery to this. That through the cross of Christ, God in his fullness, by his spirit, can come to live in us can make us his children. The gospel is easy to express. And in one sense, it's easy to grasp. Easy enough that children can receive these truths, can believe these truths, can become part of the family of God. But in another sense, we'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never understand the fullness of this mystery. How can the blood of Jesus Christ wash away all sin? I don't know, but it does. How is it that a simple act of faith, calling upon the name of Christ for salvation, is the key that applies the blood of Christ to me and brings me into the family of God? I don't know, 
but it does. These are wonderful truths. These are truths we hold dear. But especially to those who don't know Christ, they are a mystery. And Paul is saying, that is the mystery that I want to express. The gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful and beautiful mystery, and Paul wants to share it at every opportunity so that others, too, can grasp the wonder of Christ, can receive these mysterious, wonderful truths. So Paul asks the Colossians, as he's seeking to, to make known the mystery of Christ, he asks them for two things. First of all, he asks them to pray for divine opportunities. In his words, Paul asked them to pray that God would open unto us a door of utterance. God is, or Paul is praying that God would create opportunities for him. Now we can have a certain picture in our minds of what this looks like. We can see this as everything falling into place perfectly. And here's our great opportunity, our perfect opportunity to share the gospel. Everything lines up just so. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. To better understand what he's thinking, I think it's helpful to look at another passage where he talks about God opening a door. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talks about a door of opportunity that God has opened to him. He, he tells the Corinthians in this letter of his intent to tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. And here's the reasoning he gives. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if we uh, look through the ministry of Paul, we find in Acts 19 some better, understand, some better explanation of what's going on in Ephesus. Uh, what's going on in Paul's ministry that he says he's got a great door and effectual open to him. And it is amazing to hear about what God does in Ephesus through Paul. He's got a chance to, he shares God's word in the synagogue there to the Jews for three months. And then... They kind of kick him out. They, they don't like what he's saying. So he moves over to a Greek school, and there he shares God's word for three more years. This is a very long time of ministry in the ministry of Paul to be in one place, mostly because usually he gets kicked out of cities or run out because they're trying to kill him. But here he is in Ephesus. He's got this great door, this great opportunity, and we might think that means there aren't any enemies Nobody's trying to get him. Nobody's, nobody's trying to run him out of town. Everything's good in Ephesus. Everyone likes him. Everyone's ready to listen. Well, we know from scripture that's not true. He faces obstacles, challenges throughout his time in Ephesus. And in fact, the time culminates in a, a citywide riot where several of Paul's companions uh, get by the mob and, and they bring them down to the, to the, um, the Colosseum's the word I'm trying to say, but that's not right. Um, but they bring them down in front of all the people. The whole city's in an uproar. Half of them don't even know what's going on. But there's, Paul almost gets dragged into it too. There's a great potential that Paul and his companions are going to get killed or injured. Something horrible is going to happen to them. But that's the sort of opposition they face. And of course, God, we know the story, God provides, God brings them out of that, and Paul moves on to another place of ministry. But as we look at Paul's ministry, we understand that to Paul, just because there was a great door of opportunity didn't mean everything was perfect. 
It didn't mean there wasn't any opposition. It didn't mean there wasn't any trouble. In fact, right there in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. That's part of doing the work of Christ. Paul understood that. And in fact, he reminds them here in Colossians 4 that he's faced opposition leading up to where he is now. Because what does he tell them about his current state? He tells them, verse 3, that he wants to speak the mystery of Christ, end of the verse, for which I am also in bonds. Paul is currently imprisoned in the city of Rome because of what he's done in the name of Christ. So to say Paul's praying for a perfect opportunity, meaning take all the obstacles away, make it easy, that's not what Paul is praying for. So what is he praying for? Well, I believe that what Paul is praying for here is that God would do the work that only God can do. That he would open doors in people's hearts. A door of utterance doesn't mean everything about the situation is just right. It doesn't mean that somebody walks up to me and says, can you explain the gospel to me? Now, Paul did have an experience in Philippi where somebody came up, ran up to him and said, what must I do to be saved? And we think, how amazing would that be? We just get to share the gospel. But remember what led up to that? He got beaten. He got thrown in a dungeon. He and Silas were singing while they were in the stocks. And then they went through an earthquake. Then they had the chance for the guy to run up and they got to explain the gospel to them. Well, Paul knows that just because God is at work doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But what Paul wants to see God do is to open the door inside of Paul's listeners so the message can take root. The open door he's looking for is open hearts, open ears, people who are willing to hear. Paul can share the gospel all he wants, but he cannot make anyone willing to hear. He cannot change anything about a hard heart, but he knows that God can. God can reach in, and he can grab those people's attention. He can turn their hearts towards himself in a way that we do not understand, but his spirit can do that work. And Paul is saying, pray that God will open doors. Pray that God will give me opportunities like that. Only God can do the work of softening a heart. And Paul recognizes his dependence on God to do that work. So his first prayer is to, for divine, infer, divine intervention, for God to open doors um, that no man can open, to open hearts to the gospel. But he has a second request. He says that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul recognizes that gospel work is divine work. But he also recognizes that it's human work. He asked the Colossians to pray for him that he would be faithful. For the good news of Jesus Christ to penetrate a heart and turn someone to God requires the supernatural working of God's spirit, but in the mysterious wisdom of God, it also requires the work of human instruments. Most often, it requires an individual human messenger. And Paul recognized that 
that it was his purpose to take the mystery of Christ and to do his best to make it manifest, to make it plain, to make it understandable to those who are hearing him. But he recognizes he has a responsibility in this. Yes, he knows that all of it's meaningless without God opening the door, but that doesn't let him off the hook. He needs their prayers that he would stay faithful, that he would be, he would do a good job, for, for lack of a better way of saying it, in making clear the gospel of Christ to others. He says, pray for God to do his work, but pray for me too, that I would do my work. You know, that's the biblical justification, I think, for the time and study that we're spending on something like the exchange training. The training isn't a silver bullet. It's not something that if we use this, it's going to manipulate people and make them believe. None of us think that. But it's a tool that helps us, that equips us to better, more faithfully make manifest the mystery of Christ. Give us tools to do our part faithfully. A large part of the believer's interaction with non-believers ought to be focused on making outsiders into insiders. We ought to be dedicated to speaking the mystery of the gospel of Christ so that those who are rebels against God can be brought into relationship with God. So as Paul is addressing this idea of believers, those inside the body, and how they ought to interact with those who are outside the body, this is, this is top of the list. This is key. He's saying we've got to be dedicated to this. We've got to give attention and prayer and work to speaking the mystery of Christ. But he goes on in the next verses to share more important instruction for how Christians ought to interact with outsiders. Verse 5 we see the admonition to walk in wisdom. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? Well, that's to live in light of the truth, to act appropriately, to act purposefully, instead of acting childishly. Scripture tells us that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Children usually do a poor job walking in wisdom. Uh, I don't want to pick on my too badly, but most of the time, they act not according to what is true and what is appropriate and what is purposeful, but according to their whims or whatever thought strikes them or how they feel in the moment. And I find myself more often than I'd like to admit watching and listening to my children and thinking, what possessed you to act in that way? What were you thinking? And I recognize the answer to that question usually is there wasn't much thinking going on. But that's what we expect from children. And to be fair, scripture told me to expect that from my children. It also gave me instruction on how to help them uh, towards the Lord. But the expectation is that that way of living would pass away as we mature into adulthood. But how often do we act childishly? According to our whims, our emotions, or whatever pops into our mind in the moment, 
how many of us truly walk in wisdom? How many of us truly live and act according to what is true and what is appropriate and what is purposeful, regardless of how it makes us feel? This is a call to us, particularly in our dealings with them that are without. When we think about, as believers, how we interact with those who are non-believers, those who need to come to Christ, we ought to be giving attention to walking in wisdom. And this is really important. There's an urgency to this, because Paul says, redeeming the time. He's encouraging them to make the most of that limited commodity. And we talk about that idea of redeeming the time in all different contexts, but it's uniquely important when we think about how we interact with those who don't know Christ. Think about it this way. We will spend all eternity with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. But our time to influence those who do not know Christ is limited. We need to make the most of the time that we have by walking in wisdom. So what does that look like? Well, just to think about it in a couple of practical ways, if you work in a secular workplace, what are you known for among your coworkers? Now, we often talk about making sure that your coworkers know that you're a Christian, know that you put God first. That's so important. But when we think about the idea of walking in wisdom, I think that means that Christians ought to be really sensitive about bad-mouthing the boss or griping about new company policies. Is that walking in wisdom according to what is true and purposeful? If you think about what is our reputation with our neighbors, a Christian ought not be the one who's always fighting with their neighbors about the property line or gossiping with neighbors about other neighbors. We need to walk in wisdom. Because the way we live, our manner of life, is going to have a big impact on our ability to influence them for Christ. In Genesis 19, a man named Lot was surrounded by people who didn't know God. He lived in the middle of a sinful, godless city called Sodom. He was surrounded by outsiders in the sense that we're talking about it today. And his time among them was limited. In fact, one day messengers from God show up and they tell Lot that God is going to destroy the city, the city of Sodom. God's going to destroy it. And they ask Lot if he has any other family members who need to be warned about the coming destruction. Now Lot, his wife and two, his two youngest daughters uh, live there at the house, but he's got some older daughters who are married, and Lot goes out to try to warn them and their families. His warning to the husbands of his daughters is sober. He says, up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. This is a sober warning. Lot is serious about this. This is a big deal. He doesn't want to see his family destroyed by the judgment of God. The question is, will his son-in-laws take him seriously? His sons-in-law. The fact is, the answer to that question was determined by Lot 
long before he knocked on the door that day. Because these sons-in-law had seen Lot's life. They knew how he lived. They knew how his, what his life showed about what he believed. They knew whether he had been walking in wisdom and redeeming the time or whether he had just adapted to the ways of the wicked city. And the response of Lot's sons-in-law here to his warning of coming judgment tells us all that we need to know about what they knew of Lot's life. When Lot warns them, scripture says, he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. This is a funny joke, Lot. All of a sudden, here you show up and you're talking about the judgment of God. Where did this come from? And they laugh. And they don't heed the warning. And the next day, Lot and his wife and his two youngest daughters flee the city. But Lot's married daughters, their husbands, and I don't know, maybe Lot's grandkids, were among those consumed in the fiery judgment that falls from heaven. We need to not live like children, foolishly. If we are going to be who we ought to be for the, the outsiders that surround us, we need to walk in wisdom. We need to make the most of the time that we have. Our manner of life is going to make a difference. And finally, in Colossians 4, 6, we're instructed to speak with grace and salt. Here's Colossians 4, 6. Paul says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So Paul has challenged these believers in Colossae to, to live wisely, and now he's challenging them to speak wisely. And there are a couple of elements to this. Two things that ought to mark our speech, grace and salt. We'll take them one at a time. What, what is Paul talking about here? Well, what does Paul mean when he tells them that their speech should be with grace? Often when we think of grace in the context of scripture, we think of God's grace, his favor towards us. Here, Paul is talking about something a, a bit different. It's the same word, but the idea is that of favor shown by us to others. Think in terms of gracious or graceful speech. So something gracious is something that is favorable and pleasant and kind. Something that is graceful is something that is favorable, pleasant, and beautiful. And so there ought to be a grace to the way that Christians speak. Our speech ought not be full of anger, be combative or ugly, it ought to be full of grace. It ought to be kind, even beautiful. Being well-spoken is a desirable trait in a Christian. It's something we ought to give attention to. We're powerful things. And when they're used properly, when they're submitted to God, they can do amazing work. We as Christians ought to be setting the standard for well-crafted, meaningful, balanced speech. But there's also another piece to this. Paul says their speech ought to be seasoned with salt. 
of course, he's using a word picture here. So what, is, what does it mean to be your speech to be seasoned with salt? Well, I think that salty speech is the idea of speech that, that, that bites, speech that gets your attention, that has something to say, speech that lodges in your heart, speech that makes you think, speech that truly expresses something. Speech that is seasoned with salt sticks with us. You know what I'm talking about. Somebody says something to you and it just sticks. And the next day you find yourself thinking about it again. And a week later, it comes to your mind again. It sticks there. It's given you something to think about, to to ponder on. And you say, there's something to that. It's not just the daily conversation that comes and goes and we forget about it. At the end of the day, what makes our speech seasoned with salt is whether or not it is full of God's truth. Think of our words in this way. Of everything that you say, every idea that you share with someone as a dish that you're offering to them. Saying, here you go, uh, try this. Now, if we think about, uh, if someone offers me something to eat, there are going to be several things I'm going to be thinking about and whether or not I'm going to want to partake of that. And we won't go through the whole list of what I'd be thinking about, but one of the things I'm going to think about right off the bat is what does it look like? Presentation matters. We all have seen food that was presented, plated beautifully. It just looked delicious because of how it was prepared. Maybe even you've had something where you said, man, I I almost hate to bite into this because it just looks so good. But you probably uh, found the willpower to bite into it anyway. We also probably all know what it means to see or be presented a dish where you just couldn't get past what it looked like. It might be delicious, but I just, just looking at it, I, I just can't. I can't bring myself to try it. It does matter what it looks like. And so it is with our words. When we speak with grace, we're presenting ourselves well. We're making it easier for people to consider what we have to say. There are times when somebody can express something that's true with the wrong spirit, and it's really hard to receive that truth. But if something is presented with the right spirit, with grace, it's much easier to say, yeah, I'll give that a try. But of course, presentation is definitely not, that all, not all that matters about the food that we eat. It also matters how it's seasoned. If it's not properly seasoned, it's not going to be very satisfying or enjoyable. It might even be downright disgusting. Food needs to have seasoning to have flavor, and it needs real, substantial ingredients to offer the eater some nutrition. So as we think about this in the context of our words, it doesn't matter how well we present ourselves and how eloquently we speak if our words are empty, if we have nothing of substance to say. You can be the best most well-spoken person in the world, but if you're not sharing the truth, it's empty. It's meaningless. It might look beautiful, but there's no substance. There's no flavor. There's nothing that matters that's really there. 
So we need to give care and make sure that when we open our mouths, we have something meaningful to say. Particularly as we interact with outsiders, with those who don't know Christ. We need to be sure that the salt of God's truth seasons all of our speech. We need to give thought and attention to our speech so that we can always be ready with a meaningful and well-crafted answer. That's what Paul is saying in this verse. And we find a wonderful example of this from Paul's own life in, in Acts 26. Paul there is on trial and he's been afforded an opportunity to speak for himself before King Agrippa. And we're not going to read through the whole passage, but he speaks there, and, and you can read it for yourself. He speaks with honor, he speaks with grace to this king. Despite the fact that we know from history, this king was a pretty horrible guy. As he speaks to the king, he appeals to the king's knowledge of Jewish teaching and custom. And then he goes on to share the story of his own upbringing, of his miraculous encounter with Jesus Christ while he was traveling to Damascus, and of the change that Christ made in his life through his personal meeting with Christ, who was once his enemy. He goes on to give evidence of the change wrought in his life. He tells Agrippa, Having therefore attained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Paul's speech in this chapter is well thought out. It's measured. It's full of truth and it's full of passion. And as he finishes, he asks the king this question. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And Agrippa's famous answer, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But Paul's manner of speech in this passage is amazing. His speech is full of grace. It is seasoned with salt. Paul is walking wisely. He's making the most of the time that he has with King Agrippa. He's taking this as an opportunity from God to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is on trial. And yet he says, here is an opportunity from God. And he truly makes the most of that opportunity. He's very respectful, but he's not fearful. He doesn't shy away from expressing the truth clearly. He presents it reasonably. He appeals to the testimony of the Hebrew scriptures. He illustrates from his own personal experience. His words take the attention of this trial and turn it away from Paul himself to Christ and to Agrippa. And in essence, he leaves Agrippa with the uncomfortable and essential question, what will you do with Jesus? It's amazing to see this example. And as we look at Colossians 4, to get this glimpse into the mind and heart of Paul, who is arguably the greatest evangelist of all time. But he reveals here in Colossians 4 what he's thinking about. How he's considering the impact of his manner of life and of his manner of speech on, the, on his effectiveness for Christ. And he is deeply concerned about he, how he and other believers are interacting 
with outsiders. This is important to Paul. And he wants it to be important to the believers in Colossae. So there is such thing as an outsider. There is a difference between those who are born again, those who are part of the body of Christ, and those who are without, foreign to the grace of God and a personal relationship with God. And it's a mistake for all of us to ignore that distinction. Of course, that doesn't mean that we ought to shun those who are outside, keeping them at arm's length and avoiding their company. Instead, we need to recognize the importance of giving thought and attention to the way that we interact with them. We need to prioritize the gospel, the mystery of Christ. We need to trust God for opportunities, seeking those opportunities and preparing ourselves to share the mystery of Christ. We ought to be careful and wise in how we speak and use our time. We need to be aware of the impact of our behavior and our words. Now I do want to acknowledge that everyone here this morning is not necessarily an insider. I'm sure there are people here this morning who do not have a personal, personal relationship with God. And I say this in love, but I want to stress to you this morning the fact that there is a difference between those who are Christ and those who aren't. And you coming to church this morning, you even pursuing involvement or even church membership, does not make you an insider. This is not a matter of behavior. It's a matter of relation to God. In Colossians 1, Paul reminds the Christians in Colossae that before they gave their lives to Christ, they were alienated from God. They were enemies of God. But because of Christ's death for them, they've been reconciled to God. And you too can be reconciled to God through the provision of Christ's sacrifice. Even if you are an outsider right now, on the outside looking in, not knowing the reality of relationship with God, if you come to Christ and in faith confess him as Lord and receive his forgiveness, he promises that he will not cast you out. For those of us who are inside the family of God, let's take seriously these admonitions. Let's be those who are committed to sharing the mystery of Christ, making the most of the time that we have with our unsaved family members, our coworkers, our neighbors. Let us speak to them with grace and salt so that outsiders, those who are alienated and enemies, might be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the distinction between those who are yours and those who are not is not a matter of our worthiness or our background or our intellect level. It's just a matter of receiving the free gift of Christ. Thank you. And I want to say with all of us to this morning who know Christ and are in relationship with you, thank you for allowing us to be your children. But Lord, help us take seriously our responsibility to share the mystery of Christ. Help us to take seriously 
our manner of life and our manner of speech, particularly as we interact with those who do not know Christ. Let us give care and attention to this matter. And use us, please, to share that mystery so that those who are currently alienated from you can be reconciled through the blood of Christ and become, become a part of your family as well. And Lord, I pray this morning for anyone who doesn't yet know Christ. Help them come to you today. Help them simply turn to you and receive the free gift of salvation. Do your work, please, now. May our attention be fully on you and your word and what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.